Welcome to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. Hey, Jeremy, how are you today? Hey, good, mate. How are you? I'm not too bad. It's a nice, warm, sunny day. I'm going to go hang Christmas lights. <laughs> oh, we did, we did that last week when our Washington State basically put in place uh, no one's allowed in the house unless they're a resident of the house and pubs and restaurants are shut here now. So Thanksgiving is a wash, basically. So I was like, all right, Christmas starts before Thanksgiving this year. Like I need something to cheer myself up. Yeah, I hear you. But getting back to work, sadly, big, big announcement. Huge announcement. I, I joke because I know this was near and dear to your heart. And then you left that part of the the, 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 the group. So uh, the new redesigned Microsoft Graph change log. Why don't you give us a quick overview of what the, what's going on here? Yeah. So um, this was my, I think one of my things I announced that I had an idea about at MVP Summit like two years ago now. It was in person. How novel is that? And um, I kind of gauged the room's interest if I did this. And like, it was basically everyone was rounds of applause, thumbs up. Like it was, I think the biggest reaction of the entire summit. And so I went back to the team was like, hey, look, I think we really need to do this based on this signal. And so the change log to date historically has been a, a markdown file where whenever a team publishes new docs, they have to put a manual text entry in the change log and it's become this giant gang tour file that's really hard to read and um, not obviously filterable or anything searchable. And so originally we were just going to put a structured format around it and put like a nice front end on it with a, you know, filters to say, just show me one version one changes or just show me better changes or just show me teams changes. So when we did that, the onboarding team that kind of put published the metadata into the actual API and actually released the API f- like for reals on our gateway said, well, we could probably generate that JSON. So the project took longer because we had to kind of build generated descriptions that didn't look like robot descriptions <laughs> and keep our docs team happy on the fact that they could still edit them if they wanted to. And so now, yes, yeah, so we have this change log live now. The really big bit, which I really died on the hill for, was you can get RSS feeds. So if you want an RSS feed of just the SharePoint beta changes, you can subscribe to that in whatever RSS feeder or IFTTT or Zapier or Power Automate and do all sorts of funky stuff to notify you that you know, something news come out. Now, obviously, this is not a roadmap. This is a change log. So it only appears on here as it arrives on the surface of the API, but it's still better than um, what we have right now. So, yeah, so Molly Shove, who started with us, I guess, six months ago now and did an intern wave with uh, me as her mentor, um, picked this project up and saw it through. And it's a great one for her to do as a first project as a PM because, well, it was really complicated because there's so many teams involved and there was a high bar on kind of quality and stuff and front end and back end. And so, yeah, it was, I'm just really proud of her for getting this out the door. It's great. Thanks, Molly. Certainly, this is something uh, uh, that I look look at. I've been looking at ChangeLog for a long time and uh, it'd be great to filter that down. Yeah, I told her like from a, like a success criteria, just keep checking the web analytics of that page and you'll suddenly realize like what you've actually done as your first project that you've 
shipped is getting a lot of eyeballs on it every day. So yeah, I mean, it's a great one for a PM to have as a first project. And since I have you explaining things on Microsoft Graph, <laughs> there is a blog post, Retiring Microsoft Graph Notifications, which spawned confusion with me and some other longtime uh, consumers of the graph. So can we walk through what these words mean, please? <laughs> so um, I have a, like, there's a private chat that myself and CJ, who obviously I used to work with at Hyperfission, was my manager when I was in marketing. And there's two others that we kind of have running for a bunch of stuff. And yeah, I woke up this morning to a big like WTF text from Andrew Connell, or AC as I call him. You're getting rid of webhooks and you're only going to allow Azure notifications next year. And I'm like, no, no, no. These are Microsoft Graph notifications, not Microsoft Graph change notifications. And the difference is, I, I wish we just called our change notifications webhooks, but there was an argument that if another protocol came along, we'd want to call all those things change notifications. A webhook would be a implementation of how we notify on change. These notifications are actually what was kind of known as Project Rome, where you could push a notification to a user's end device, whether it was an iPhone or an Android device. And there was like an a special SDK they had, and they built this whole thing on top of the graph. When this all got shipped originally, I was like, well, I've just come from Azure land where they did all this stuff. Like there was the mobile apps and web apps and all of that, the mobile app suite that came with Azure App Service had push notifications. Like I was the marketing person for it. Now that's all evolved these days into a, a full-blown Azure service. And so it was decided that we would retire the graph notifications and just essentially push the Azure services, the de facto way of doing things at Microsoft when it comes to pushing notifications to multiple devices. Now, had all of those products had things where like, if you read the notification on your iPhone, it would, in your Windows 10 notifications, it would show you that it had been read. So there, were, there was some smart stuff that it did, but we've just let it move over to Azure land and, and not have it on the graph anymore which will mean that we won't have this problem anymore with notifications and chain notifications and webhooks, um, which is a plus plus benefit for us because this blog post is actually quite confusing because it needs to just call out the fact this is not webhooks people. And so I'm just getting the marketing people to change it. So hopefully by the time you listen to this podcast, it's changed. Yes. And so the other thing though, that is, um, somewhat confusing is in the past, the things that are still going to be around were called subscriptions, right? Correct. Yeah. And in fact, um, I still see the subscription as part of the URL in some of the docs here, at least in beta. So, so webhook slash subscription, meaning you're going to call my endpoint when something happens is still there. Correct. The deliver something to an end user device is going away. Correct. And you will be recommended and it's going away in February of 2021 um, and basically move over to Azure notification hubs as a product instead. Okay. It's always good when we have multiple product teams building the same product. Exactly. Um, and speaking of things going away. Yeah, another big one. Yeah, before we click record, I'm like, hey, only two or three people use this. And you said, oh, I'm, I'm so wrong. So the Outlook REST <laughs> API. <laughs> what is this yeah, uh, so, deprecation notice? <laughs> so there's Outlook REST API has been around for a long time. I mean, obviously, EWS, the Exchange Web Services, is the real like legacy stuff that a lot of people still use. And Outlook REST is actually going to be deprecated too. And so the Outlook V1 is deprecating in April the 30th of 2021. 
And the V2 is they're going to deprecate November the 30th, 2022. So you've got a while on league time. And, you know, to your comment on, well, doesn't everyone just use the graph? Well, they, these things were around for a long time. Um, and there was a time where sometimes the API endpoints on the Outlet REST endpoint were ahead of what the graph was until all of our underlying infrastructure and code sharing got better, where like once you shipped on one, it would came on the, the other one straight away. So there were benefits to hanging on to Outlet REST, um, partly because also Exchange Server allowed you to use this API. So you could kind of use both and whether you were talking to an exchange on-prem or an exchange online environment. Um, and so this is really just us drawing a line in the sand that look, we really want you to use only the Microsoft graph. Um, and obviously we spent a lot of time investing on making sure the parity is there. And there are benefits of using the graph over this. You know, if you have already got your users consenting to the graph and say they're just using calendar right now, the benefit then is, is if say you want to go do something where you create a team or you want to access OneDrive files, you've already got them in the graph consent flow. Whereas if you do it with Outlook REST first and then switch and you have to re-architect um, using the graph, you've then got to go through that whole thing of you know re-consenting for calendar access as well as anything else. And and so you know if you're starting any net new project right now, you won't be able to um, add the permissions for Outlook REST. We've actually blocked it, so um, it'll only be grandfathered in Azure AD apps that will be able to use Outlook REST until these deprecation dates. So go check your code bases, <laughs> see if you're using Outlook rather than graph.microsoft.com, and um, switch them over. And the mapping's the same, the schemas and everything are exactly the same. So you'll be fine on switching it through. All right. Uh, so you mentioned the the graph consent flow. There's an update to that. <clears throat> the publisher verification and app consent policies are now generally available. And I know we had Jeff uh, Sakowitz on a while back we to did. talk about publisher verification. And so the, I'm guessing this is now up. You can get the blue dot on your uh, on your app registrations now, folks. So hop to it. And so we put a blog post into there, but I also want to transition into there is a a post from Tom Morgan talking about how there are some policies where unverified multi-tenant apps cannot be consented by end users, which sounds scary, but I think there's some mitigations in place. So we'll post a link to both to this uh, publish, to this uh, announcement, and to this uh, blog post from from Tom Morgan as well. And so uh, since you're in explanation mode, I'll let you I'll toss it back to you. Uh, <laughs> so. Yeah, so this was a Twitter. There's been like three Twitter friends this week that I've had to be like jump on and help out, kind of guys steer the conversation. Um, Tom did a great job of blogging about this. And um, it was Bob German, I think, that read reposted a link to his blog post and and there was a few questions from other people and so I the main confusion is well you know does that mean that if I've built an enterprise application that's multi-tenant yeah I have to go through the publisher verification process because publisher verification means that you have to have like a Microsoft partner network ID and MPN number and you have to go through this like verification of your your office address and LLC and blah 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 no you don't because an admin of a tenant can consent an Azure AD app uh, even if that isn't a publisher verified app so the only thing this kind of blocks and for good reason is that it doesn't allow anybody in the organization to go find an Azure AD app somewhere um, and get it published now Oh, sorry, and consent to it to use it. And this really does reduce a, a huge security vector around people being able to like 
consent to an app because they think they trust it that an admin might not be aware of to have blocked in the first instance and forces them to request the admin to actually go through and validate the apps okay for them to use the only kind of other inconvenience i can see is if i'm a developer and i'm building something now if i'm not an admin in the tenant i'm working in then obviously I've got trouble. I've got to go find the admin in the tenant to consent that app. But really all this does is force good practice on developers to work in dev environments and not in prod. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so for me, I, I'm not that worried about that nag because you know we provide free environments through the, um, the M365 um, developer program anyway. And you really shouldn't be building apps in prod people like I, i've got blog posts from 20 years ago where i've been saying that stuff you just don't do that in prod and so you know this shouldn't be an issue for developers regardless for that sense well yeah if it is an issue then maybe let's rethink your practices I, i'm totally with you <laughs> on that right and and yeah. uh um yeah so lots of ways to go around doing that and, and on the other hand if you've been if you've just been just doing this and making it work and you're a small organization and you're you are the developer and the admin well then perhaps um, at least have separate accounts, right? An admin account in your day-to-day account or something like that, something along those lines just to make sure. So great to see that. And thanks to, to Tom for calling yeah. this out and um, people can get that, get that done. The last uh, community event uh, or article I found was a blog post from our old buddy, Victor Villain. And Victor wrote the, te- the Yo Teams generator. So uh, if you are using Node and you like your JavaScript-y stuff on the server, you can do Yo Teams to generate all kinds of Teams apps, uh, tabs and message extensions about and everything. And Victor did a blog post to go through about how to deploy the output of the generator to um, Azure App Service. And so it's kind of those uh, nice step-by-step things that goes through. And he talks about using a, a DevOps pipeline. Obviously, if you're a GitHub person, you can tweak it over to that. But uh, at least this will go through and have a, a build and release pipeline that'll deploy the output from your teams up into the service. Yeah, and I actually uh, had a good conversation with Weeks this morning, and I'll put the conversation in the, the Twitter link in here. Um, I There's been an announcement this week around Microsoft Teams for personal accounts. Um, so to date, Microsoft Teams has worked if you have like a Microsoft 365 tenant and you sign in and you can see everyone within that tenant in there and chat to them and you know, create groups and add them. And actually you can even add guests from other tenants um, and also add them if they're Microsoft personal accounts too. I wish we do a lot with our MVPs. But now Microsoft Teams has released this Microsoft for personal accounts. And what this means is, is that essentially it's got all the tech of Teams. You basically sign in with your personal account. So in my case, it's an Outlook.com account. I can use the account switcher in the top right to jump between my work tenant and my personal account. And I can go add anyone that's already done this via their email address, um, or I can also add it by their cell numbers. So I can send you a text message and you open the link and you can sign in with a cell number and be up and running. Last night I did this exercise with my brothers um, who right now we use Signal. We've used WhatsApp in the past, but I got rid of Facebook stuff off all my um, platforms. It was an interesting experience. My brother got in straight away. He's had a Hotmail account like for 15 years. Um, My middle brother has an Office 365 account and his immediate reaction was to sign in with that. And of course, we don't give you a nice friendly error, do we? We give you a... (laughs) A very true to life Microsoft identity error that I was just like, oh, I'm so embarrassed. And I will not read aloud what my brother said in text message about that comment. Uh, But 
I posted on Twitter about it and said, like, I think this is a great alternative as people start to question, you know, sharing things on Facebook and Instagram, especially in America right now, where everyone's scared to do anything for being trolled, depending on if they've got political opinions on that. That, um, you know, for the last four years, I've been sharing photos of my daughter just in a, an album, a shared album um, in, Go- in Google Photos, which I'm going to have to switch off now because they're charging for that and go to OneDrive album. But uh, Wicta saw my comments and was like, yeah, look, I don't get this. But there's already so many other products out there like WhatsApp and um, Signal and Facebook Messenger and, you know, like iMessage and so forth. And it's a really good thread if you want to go read it because, you know, we kind of debate back and forth. He was like, woke, just woke up. I was like ramping down for the night after a few glasses of wine. So it's a good like fast and loose conversation around the opinions. And I think the end result was Wicta was like, well, I talked to my kids on Snapchat and I was just laughing, going, I wonder what Paul's going to say about that. Like, do you even know what Snapchat is, Paul? Um, I have heard of Snappygram, yes, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I have grandkids and their parents are on the Snap. So I do have a Snap account. And in a typical Paul fashion, I only launch it when my wife tells me there's something I should go look at. Oh, and then you go and click and view it. Yeah, that's like my parents as well. Yeah. yeah so we was saying he like com- converses with his kids like that. I'm like, what? So like no text message or anything? He's like, no, it's all Snapchat. I was like, well, okay. So it'll be interesting. I think from a developer perspective, I believe there is a huge opportunity here. If you've got a cool idea for this notion of like soccer clubs using this to run, you know, their league and having a calendar of events and sharing files and sharing photos and videos, and you can build a personal app that snaps to that group. Um, and helps that organization or, you know, I'm going to have a team, a group, sorry, for my family and share photos and videos and chat and be able to make calls. Consumer extensions here are a big thing. And I'm really excited to see what the, you know, the ecosystem does with this stuff in the consumer world of um, this scenario. Uh, You know, ever since teams came out, and the Teams developer or the Teams extension or Teams platform, whatever you call it, the, the, the extensibility, I've been saying you want to do something for the users who are in Teams. So I, I, the Teams was never designed for me to say, I'm going to take my on-premises legacy web app and throw it in a tab, right? You want to make it context aware. And this is the same thing. It, that, that's a great idea if the people you need to reach are in this new Teams personal version, whatever. So I think Personally, I find I don't know that I can write an app that's going to convince people to come over to Teams just because that they want to get that app. So we'll see how how the how the, the world adopts this. And and to your point, yeah, once once you have the people there doing what everything I know and love now for Teams in the enterprise will still work. A, a personal app is a personal app, right? So yeah, off we and go. I do find like the Skype calls I've been doing with my family over FaceTime calls, the quality is much better than FaceTime. And so because Teams is all baked by the same infrastructure as Skype, like you're going to get better video call group calls going on there too. So we'll see. I mean, I, there's definitely a lot of skepticism based on the Twitter conversation I was having, but it's worth a read. Yeah. And at some point, maybe do a show on it. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, so this week uh, you did an interview with someone who I cannot pronounce the name, so I'm not going to try. So tell us about our interview this week. <laughs> so so uh, Raju uh, is an awesome guy that I've worked with. Um, he li- he is in the same building as me in 32 when we're actually in the office. And uh, Graph Connectors is, is for me one of the most exciting new things that are coming on the graph. I think there are some scenarios that we go through today and in the future that are super exciting. So I'm pleased we got him on and uh, I hope you enjoy this and uh, we'll keep going, keep 
letting us know what you want to hear about uh, on Twitter. And um, th- have a good weekend, Paul. Same to you. And before we go, now graph connectors or search connectors. What are these things called? Let's make sure we got the right name. Gra- <laughs> graph connectors. All right, graph connectors. So uh, thanks for yeah. doing this interview, and we'll uh, chat next week. Cheers, mate. Hey, thanks for joining me today, mate. Hey, Jeremy. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invite. So um, it, it feels weird not being able to bump into you in the hallways to find out what's going on with uh, the work you're doing at the moment, being all everyone remote at home. Yeah, I, I, I miss those days. We were literally like uh, just a block away. <laughs> yeah, like the way uh, for people that have maybe not seen photos of our campus, our, our buildings were like one of the ones got renovated few years ago i think right before i joined and there's this neighborhood thing which i'm assuming they're gonna have to throw out the window now with bringing us back maybe maybe in july of next year we were in like opposite neighborhoods so it was always in the hallways we bump into each other when we were getting our eighth can of soda or going to the cafe yeah miss those days but glad to finally catch up with you yeah and so um for those that don't know you um how long have you been at Microsoft and how long have you been working on this particular product? I've been close to, I've been in with Microsoft for close to seven years now and specifically with Graph Connectors platform for close to two, two and a half years now. Uh, it's, it's been a long journey. I, I started in the Bing org, uh, worked in on Azure storage for some time before finally landing in Office 365. Oh, I didn't know you did the Azure storage run. Interesting. Well, out of interest, what did you work on there in Azure Storage? Uh, we worked on a hybrid storage device called Azure Store Simple. Yeah, yeah. Now, there's a more recent reincarnation of it where a different product called Azure Data Box is being positioned in that place now. Right. Cool. Yeah, it's interesting that it's such a different way of working in the Azure org to the, um, the office org, in my opinion. Have you, did you think the same thing? Absolutely, yeah. I, I pretty much got a flavor of like all three major orgs within Microsoft. So that, that was fun. And I, uh, I, I allowed my uh, tenure within the office org, Office 365. Yeah, yeah, you got a good team there. And so you're working on graph connectors, essentially. What, why did this come about? What was the driver to build a whole team around connectors? Well, that's a, that's a great place to start. We, uh, within Microsoft 365, we are powering various workplace productivity solutions, ranging from search to content recommendations, experiences, uh, and, and a few other intelligent services that are offered today. But if we notice, all of these services are available for content that's natively pro- available in the Microsoft Cloud. That's messages and conversations in the within Outlook and Teams, uh, events, uh, again, uh, within these uh, services, as well as files in SharePoint and OneDrive. Traditionally, none of the benefits of the M365 experiences, all the tech, tech that we power today, has been able to pan to serve a customer's needs beyond the Microsoft Cloud. With graph connectors, what we are trying to do is bridge the gap between content that's natively present in Microsoft Cloud and content that's otherwise present in the customer environment. For example, a customer might have, beyond, beyond the Microsoft 365 productivity services, they might use other SaaS services or some on-premise line of business applications, none of which is searchable or discoverable uh, in the same way Microsoft content would. And Graph Connectors is effectively a platform to bridge that gap. No matter where your content is, you can bring them into the Microsoft Cloud using Graph Connectors and get the same benefits that you would otherwise get for your Microsoft content. So very much the the enterprise search play that 
kind of the gartners and of the, the world talk about from a, a user experience perspective? That, that that's one of the key key pieces, and it's not just it's not just search. Uh, we position graph connectors not just as a search indexing solution. It's been it's it has a much wider play than that. Today, most customers uh, have deployed Microsoft Search as as their enterprise search engine. They use it to search for all content within their org, and graph connectors plays a pivotal role, expanding search, which would otherwise be limited to messages, events, and files, to any entity available in the customer environment. Similarly, security and compliance. Today, we have security and compliance solutions that pan content in the Microsoft Cloud, and we are trying to establish graph connectors as the connector platform by which uh, customers could integrate um, all their existing uh, solutions, whether it be line of business solutions, and we're even working with uh, um, uh, other partners, uh, popular SaaS services out there, so that they can build a single uh, a, a compliance solution that acts as a single pane of glass for a compliance admin. And pretty much like it, it shows up as an uh, integrated experience for a Microsoft customer. And beyond that, there are a few other interesting uh, aspects that are uh, coming up. One is uh, the content recommendation experience that you would see in office, office.com. If you go to office.com, you'd see a couple of uh, files being recommended because it's trending uh, in your org or somebody recommended to you. All these recommendations today are generated based on activity, that uh, your activity or activity around you. Uh, one of the pieces we are trying to do is extend that experience to bring in all the third-party content that you're engaging with as well. And a fourth key piece that we are working on is called Project Cortex. It's a mission-curated way of curating a, a whole range of topics within the organization. Think of it as a knowledge mining workload that pretty much like provides powers insights on all the topics within the organization. We are working towards uh, getting all the external content to also participate in knowledge mining and knowledge attribution scenarios. That's actually really cool. And so, yeah, that is a good point. And, and like from way back in my day as a consultant in Australia, we used the SharePoint searching index back then, and there was these things called external content types where you could do a similar thing, where you could define a schema and have SharePoint show those external sources. But obviously, all this was on-premises um, in a SharePoint server world where you'd have to build out these giant SharePoint farms and you know have I mean, that's what I was doing back then was like kind of the solution architecture role of de- defining the farms. And th- you know this is quite a big step for us because it's, all this is cloud-based, but there's nothing stopping you from technically plugging in an on-premises uh, data source into these graph connectors that are running the cloud, right? I'm assuming that the graph connectors can get access to that on-premises uh, data source. Absolutely, absolutely. So the platform is modeled in a fairly simple way. We offer a small set of REST APIs on, on top of Microsoft Graph. And customers would be able to push any content, whether it's from an external SaaS service or from an on-premise line of business solution. It shouldn't matter. In fact, uh, Microsoft publishes close to six uh, um, uh, reference connectors out of the box. Uh, any customer, uh, uh, E3 or E5 customer, would be able to get into admin.microsoft.com, navigate to the search search experience where, where they administer search experience and they would be able to go ahead and set one of these connectors. Today, there are a, a few SaaS connectors like uh, ServiceNow and Azure DevOps, Azure SQL, and a few others. And there are also a set of on-prem connectors. For example, if your Microsoft SQL Server uh, is hosted on-premise, you could set up one of these reference connectors and start indexing data from there. 
That's really cool. And I'm glad that you mentioned ServiceNow because I, I, I was uh, volunteered to do the keynote was two builds ago now on stage with Rajesh. And I think I was the first one to show this stuff. And we actually use ServiceNow as one of the scenarios of like how this would get used. And so I'm glad we kind of stuck to it and actually got that scenario out there. So I can say that <laughs> the thing I announced in the keynote actually did end up being shipped as a, as a product. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, we, we are, that, that's a great thing about it. We are finally like seeing all the, the great vision coming into uh, becoming a reality. We recently announced the general availability of Microsoft Search, graph connectors for Microsoft Search, and uh, customers would be able to start uh, consuming Search with graph connectors in production. The, com- the rollout would more or less complete around early Feb. And around build timeframe, we are targeting like introducing more new scenarios like the content recommendation experience in Office and Project Cortex Preview and a, and a few others. So this is kind of like you're building the foundations of what the connectors can do with the search experience, but Project Cortex and some of that work you were talking about with the signals of being able to do the recommendations engine will come later on. Correct. That's correct. Yeah. And so, because I know people will ask and we might as well get it answered here, if it won't be completely fully globally rolled out till February, if I'm a tenant that isn't in that rollout, is there a different way that I can get it before waiting for it to be GA or do I just have to wait patiently in my tenant for it to be flighted? That's a great question. The feature is currently rolling out, is available for target release customers. Target release customers should be able to uh, simply navigate admin.microsoft.com into the search node where they would find uh, the connector settings. If they, the tenant is not in target release, at least uh, setting the admin user, opting the admin user into target, target release would help them see all the necessary options to go and configure connectors. Right. Yeah. And I remember there was a lot of effort we're talking to some of your other, like Monica and your team around the admin UI for this. Like this, this has really been thought through as something that the admin can go in and like see and configure. You know, I think historically Microsoft has this problem where like we'll ship APIs and you'll be doing crazy kooky PowerShell commands to like configure everything in the dark. Um, whereas, you know, you've gone the right way and have this whole UI thing shipped at the same time as the APIs, which is great. Yep. And and uh, the APIs, the graph APIs themselves, for anyone who is interested in building a custom connector are fully available. A developer could simply go and register an AD app, get the right set of permissions and start calling the APIs to push content in. Uh, there are a few administrative steps uh, needed now. Uh, for example, a search admin would have to get in and go and set up um, display templates for, for entering the search results. And as we proceed uh, closer to February timeframe, you should see a default experience, a default display. All the results would start rendering using default display templates without having to do an additional step. Uh, we are trying to make it as seamless as possible for developers as well as admins. Yeah, I remember seeing on stage, I think it was at Ignite when we first announced the preview of this, where you demoed the um, Postman collection. Yep. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because that really does highlight that, you know, this really is API first tech. This isn't something done in another way. Like this has really been built on the graph as a, as a REST API. Absolutely. There is a, a fairly simple yeah, Postman collection uh, that the developers need to snap onto. There are three key APIs uh, required to build a graph connector. First one is a, a connection management API. Developers uh, go about creating connections. Connections are just containers to put the data into graph. So in all of Microsoft Graph, they create, typically a developer would create one container for all of their data from coming from one content source. 
For example, if I'm uh, indexing, let's say, content from ServiceNow, I would just go create one container, one connection for it using the Connection Management API. It's a very simple post call that you need to make. Then the key, key next step is to go and register the connection schema. And when we say schema, we require a flat list of all the properties that the developer is going to bring into that connection uh, across items. They could bring in uh, homogeneous items or heterogeneous items, it shouldn't matter. As long as they register all key properties that they're bringing in along with the data types, that forms the schema effectively. And schema also has the definition of how each property should be consumed in the graph experiences. For example, if I want the title field to be indexed, I will set a flag on it, uh, more, more like a search annotation on it, where I say, is searchable true? I just go ahead and set it on title. And if I want to use, let's say, last modified date time as a filter, literally a custom UX filter that's added into my search experience, I can mark it as definable and so on. The fundamental concepts are the same as they were with SharePoint Search. Uh, and pretty much like all those fundamentals are carried forward, but with a far more simplified developer experience. Yeah, and I, I do remember when you first kind of started doing this in the team, like you were asking for like, who do I need to go speak to? And who are the, and I was like, oh, well, this has been a pain for a lot of people. Like you really need to hear from these folks to go hear how painful that way of doing things was. And um, in the way that you've done it, like I, it's great that you went and learned what was working, what wasn't, and what was needed to like bring those people on to this new cloud way of doing it, as well as, you know, net new partners and enterprise devs being able to just jump in and easily kind of build these things out, which is great. And 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 specifically thanks to you and uh, the MVP community. So we were able to like have uh, intermittent checkpoints uh, while we evolved the platform. Yeah, that's so right. So the kind of feedback that came in and uh, it was grounded on customer feedback effectively. So that's, that's the reason it would be as simple as possible. Yeah, you guys did a really good job with that. Like, I, I think the amount you are, from a workload perspective on the graph specifically, you're the one that had the most checkpoints in with our tap and with the MVP. So, uh, but it shows because it looks so polished as an end, end thing, right? Like it's great to have out the door. You, you mentioned the data type and the schema. Mm-hmm. You know, when people think of search, they immediately kind of leap to files. Um, and so, like, touching on that, if we step back a bit before we go into the details of what files are supported, like, where where does this experience show up? Like, I, I'm, you know, in my head with the olden days, it was a SharePoint search site collection. And then you had to, like, inside of all your intranets and different things, bookmark that site collection and create your custom research results pages and, and all that jazz. Where will this show up? If I have data connected in and it's, show, it's being indexed, as an end user, like where, where will that actually show? Yep, great question. So once the developer created the connection register the schema, they can simply add all their content into it as items. Specifically, we onboarded a graph entity called external item, Microsoft.graph.external item. Uh, once they add all their items in, they would be able to see the search results through the graph search API. Uh, they would be able to get it back through the graph search API. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And the results would also show up in three key experiences that Microsoft Search covers today. One is office.com. If you go to office.com, the top search bar that's available there, you just search from it and you would get back all the results that you added. Uh, SharePoint Home and individual SharePoint site collections based searches can include connector content. So those are the key pieces that are available. Right. In addition to all of this, it's also available in Microsoft Search at Bing. And uh, that's another key canvas. We have initial discussions going on with search 
the Microsoft search in Windows, as well as search within other clients like Teams. Yeah. And those should be like coming uh, fairly, uh, most likely like towards mid next year. Yeah, I must admit, I don't, I mean, I run Windows 10, but I don't use that search box at all. Um, but um, like, I can definitely see the value in that for people that are, you know, just pushing the start menu. Like I basically use a search box there to launch applications, but I could see the value in me being able to plug in a service now number, case number or something. And then it just like use that search index to show that click on it and launch it. I think that's a great, great way of doing things. Yep. So pretty much like that, that's one handy place. Uh, that's underutilized today and bringing the power of Microsoft search would just like unlock all the potential of what all our customer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, the, probably the biggest search box I use is the Teams one and it's mainly for people look up, but I could definitely see that being used for other lookups like that case number or, um, you know, a product ID from a, you know, a CRM or a sales system. That's been one of the top asks as well, especially yeah. given that Teams is such a ecosystem centric product. If you go to Team Search today, we uh, just show the messages and content within, uh, which were like created within Teams. Yeah, yeah. But all the connected apps and their content don't show up in the search results. Ah, uh, that's true. Yeah. And customers have been asking for literally like getting that as soon as possible. That's one of the top priorities and asks coming from customers, specifically around search. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can. Yeah, because it's like you'd assume that that search box would show it if you've pinned some well, service now to the personal app on and a team that makes sense i mean i'm a big user of office.com and obviously when you install edge it's going to basically give you that option to make that your start page and sign in with your corp credentials which you know i do on every machine which is great uh, with those experiences like is it, it is files but service now like the demo that we did at build that wasn't a file that was a basically a flat record. So how do you define that difference? What's the right terms to use when we're talking between indexing files versus indexing like a record in a service now or a, a row in a SQL table? Like what, how do you describe those things when you talk to customers? So uh, to make it super simple for the developers to bring in any type of data, we uh, intentionally model the platform to be super generic. Think of the connection object uh, as just a container and you're bringing in items into it, and your item could have any property, so that there are no presumptions on what you can bring and what you can't. The external item object in Graph has three key sections. One is the one is called ACL, uh, the access control list, which determines who has access to view the item and who doesn't have access to view the item in various graph experiences, whether it be search or content recommendations in office.com or, or uh, other services that you have. The second key section is the uh, content. Content is effectively the bulk of the body of the content. If you're indexing files, for example, you're expected to bring in um, the parsed context of the file. Today, we allow indexing of, uh, just indexing of text as the content. We are working towards uh, allowing HTML and a few other binary types as well. And those would be available like more or less towards the end of next year. But currently, most developers, they use open source parsers like Apache Tika or, or their own proprietary parsing solutions. They extract text out of any, any type of file. In case of images or videos, they do OCR or transcription, uh, run, run such services and extract the text for indexing. They push that in into the content. And the third key section is the properties. Think of properties as a metadata of the item. In case I want to index a ticket, I'm going to set permissions uh, on who can view and who can't view in the ACL section. 
add the ticket body, the text version of the ticket body into the content section, and all the metadata created by created date time, last modified by, last modified date time, assigned to, uh, priority, severity, title, URL, all of it goes go into the property section. And every single property that goes into the property section is effectively what I need to pre-register in my schema, the connection schema. Right, right. And with this model, uh, anyone can bring in any item. Uh, there's no distinguishing, distinction or, or special casing provided. Between the two. Yeah. That's actually really smart. So I could potentially index all my podcast episodes as long as I had the transcript to put into the content object of that um, index description. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that's a great example. Uh, if you pick podcasts today, you, you would go about creating a, a connection to store all your podcast information in and you would register all the properties that you're going to bring in. When you bring in the podcast item, you would set the permissions in case you want everyone in the organization to be able to view it. You can simply set the permission as everyone allow. Everyone is a, is a special ace recognized by the search system today. And then for properties, you can bring in title, URL, tags, authors, and, and date time and a whole range of other fields. And even duration could be another field. And when this content got indexed, uh, in the search results, you can go ahead and you, you'd get a default search result. There's a default display template that used to render it, render it. You can go ahead and override it by creating your own custom display template through admin.microsoft.com. You would be able to go and add custom refiners uh, in your search to refine by duration or refine by created date time or even refine by authors or who participated in the particular podcast. So those are all the cool things that you could do. And it not just not applies to one one particular content type. You could literally bring any content type. Since it's a generic item, you're translating it to a generic, a generic item and adding it to graph. It can be interpreted and consumed in various ways. That's really cool. And so in terms of that development, you know, a lot of developers are very visual. Is there, I mean, obviously they can run Postman and, and get the search results back and get it in a JSON file. But is there any kind of visualization of results other than like just using the search experience to filter them? Like how real time is it if I went and put in 50 new podcasts in and wanted to see what the results are like? How instant is that index going to update on those 50 episodes being like posted into that connector? Today, it's almost instantaneous. Uh, when you add an item, it's and it, as long as you add like an item with just text, there's no pre-processing or parsing involved in between. It gets indexed immediately. It's a synchronous call, technically. Uh, within a connection, uh, with, with the current limits, you are able to make up to four concurrent calls per connection. In, in a few seconds, you should be able to index the amount of podcasts that you wanted to index. It shouldn't be a major deal. Right. And... A couple of key platform enhancements that we're working on would take that limit significantly up. We would allow bringing in up to like 25, 20 to 25 items per second. And it's just like a sustained throughput. It varies depending on the size of the item and so on. But you, you definitely get like a significantly higher number uh, closer to mid next year. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's only so much you can put through the pipe as it's being pushed through, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so um, what... Like the, the the two questions that always come up when I pitch this to partners, the first one is the security. Like, okay, you know, I know Mr. Microsoft team, you're all into Azure Active Directory and your security groups and your Teams groups and your SharePoint groups. How can ACLs be done if I'm an Oracle database with a, like nothing to do with Azure AD? Like, is that even a feasible thing to think of from an ACLs perspective? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's one of the most uh, common challenges uh, developers would face. Until recently, the search platform and most experiences supported only Azure Active Directory based ACLs. So you'd have to, uh, when you're indexing in data source, you'd have to represent users in terms of AD IDs and groups in terms of AD IDs, without which you won't be able to have effective security trimming on top of it. Recently, to simplify developers' lives, we introduced something called uh, support for external groups. External identity sync is uh, what we uh, internally call it. Data, most data sources would have, are highly likely to have external groups, and some data sources would have external users. When I say external groups, these are non-AD groups. And when I say external users, these are non-AD users. And when you are bringing data from such a data source, you need to, to accurately depict the permissions on the object that you're bringing to graph. There are a couple of things that need to happen. Before diving into what, we, what the developers are expected to do, I'll set some quick context on what, a good example. If you pick a data source like, let's say, uh, Azure DevOps, it's a Microsoft data source, Content, every single work item within Azure DevOps is a Microsoft work item. It's ACLed to Azure Active Directory users. Okay, all the permissions are set in terms of AD users. But there are also entities like teams within Azure DevOps, and all the work items under this team is also, everyone in the team has access to all the work items. Since you're bringing in items one by one into the graph connection, you need a way to make sure that the permissions don't just reflect the individuals directly added to the item, but also the team, while the team is not uh, not necessarily an AD object. The same goes for uh, Dynamics CRM, which is again another Microsoft product. There are business units within Dynamics CRM, which are not necessarily AD groups. And to translate uh, your permissions effectively, there are two, two key paths that you could take. Either you flatten the membership of all these group or group-like structures. For example, I can take every single member on, in the business unit and add them to every single item I uh, add into graph. But whenever the membership of this business unit changes, I effectively have to go and uh, update every single item and add the new member, that person who has added onto every single item. So it's not an efficient model. Right, right. Uh, instead, they could create what's called an external group. Just like we have external connection and external item, we created a new entity in graph called external group. You could create an external group Sim uh, mimic the membership, effectively sync the membership of the external group to corresponding AD users, AD groups, or even other external groups. And once you do that, you can use the external group directly in your permissions when, you, when you're indexing external items. Okay. So it's basically like a, a mapping file for the security model. Exactly. And today we have shipped this experience specifically for uh, the external groups, which was the primary pain point that customers and partners had. For users, uh, developers are currently expected to do a translation from external user to internal user. In most instances, the translation happens using an email address because when the user, N36 user, signed up to an external service, they use their email address to sign up for it. Right. And you just do a reverse lookup of the email address to the corresponding Azure Active Directory ID, and there are like very simple Graph API call to get that done. And they use that particular ID, they cache it on their end, and you use it in the ACLs when indexing the entire source. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, so that's really cool because that unlocks the whole heap of challenges that, you know, back in the days of the SharePoint search stuff was the same deal. The other thing that um, obviously comes up is, is this free? Like if I want to put in 
a million files, what, what does that look like? What boundaries or licensing model do we have around this? Because, you know, this has the potential to make the cloud very big if people go to town on putting stuff in the index. Yep. So search currently, search and compliance are uh, premium services that we offer today. And graph connectors uh, for specifically for con- uh, con- uh, scenarios like search and compliance are available only in the E3 and E5 SKUs, specifically for search. It costs close to a thousand dollar dollar a month for indexing a million items. Uh, it is available as an add-on that an E3 or E5 customer can procure. For E5 licenses, depending upon the number of E5 E5 licenses present within the tenant, there's a certain free quota available within the tenant. But beyond that, if you want additional quota, and in case of E3 customers, you would have to go for the add-on to procure uh, the thousand dollar a month add-on to procure quota in terms of million items. Right, right. And so the admin can see all this in their licensing Correct. screens to light all that up? Correct, yeah. Um, that's cool. So that's, that's, I mean, I'm glad it's not just for E5 because I know in the past we've had things where like where it has been just E5, it gets pretty intu- like unaccessible for customers that have got, you know, the majority of their user base in E3. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of, I'm glad we made that decision there. So this could be really, really accessible to to a lot of customers. You mentioned ServiceNow, you, you, you know, this notion of uh, the partner that's built that connector, but there historically there have been companies that have built 30 connectors to 30 different systems and then had some additional licensing model to manage graph connectors. Uh, is that something that you're seeing as a way forward for the ecosystem? Like are those kind of companies been supported in what you've built out? Yeah, so the, the, there are a handful of system integrated partners that we worked with. Uh, and especially during the Ignite launch, we launched with four key system integrators, uh, BA Insights, Accenture, Ration, and um, Cognizant. Uh, collectively, uh, these uh, three to four partners have built close to 140 to 150 integrations, which are available for customers. Wow, that, that 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 was a huge value add when they brought their, their corpus of connectors into the graph experiences. In addition, uh, there's a ton of interest from a lot of ISP partners who want to have much deeper integration with M365. We have had Box, Lumaps, and Goone build graph connectors and uh, ship them. Um, some of them are uh, looking forward to the broader availability of their connector integration that they developed close to closer to the end of this year. Yeah, that's really smart. I mean, Box makes total sense, right? Like if a company is across OneDrive, SharePoint and Box, having one search box to respond to everything makes it super useful for a customer to have one place to go. That's really neat. And so in those instances, they would speak to that partner and like purchase licenses and then they would set something up that would light up that graph connector that they host in their SaaS or something. So today, typically the... uh Tenant would already the tenant search admin would already have procured the corresponding licenses to uh, the add-on effectively to power search, and then they would go into the box admin console and with a few simple clicks they would be able to set up and have box content flow in, and and get indexed. Same goes for uh, other services like Go and Lumaps and a few others as well. That's really cool. I'm sure we've got a few people licking their lips now wanting to go away and like hit the keyboard. So. Where is the right place to go? Like you've, it all seems to be branded around graph connectors. Is the graph docs the right place to go to get started here? Absolutely. So it's super discoverable. It's literally uh, pointed to graph connectors. It's literally presented the graph documentation homepage. 
And if anyone wants to directly dive into uh, the concepts and API reference, they could simply use this short link, aka.ms slash graph connectors API, aka.ms slash graph connectors API. That's awesome. Okay. And then there's been a bunch of Ignite and Build talks on this. I'm assuming the most recent talks were from Ignite. That's correct. Yeah. September. That seems like a long time ago, but 2020 has been a weird one. So um, who did the presentations there at Ignite so that people can go discover those those particular videos? Yeah. So there were uh, a a few key sessions. There was a graph connector overview session uh, from James Lau and Monica Narayanan. That one would be a, a great watch. I did a session uh, along with Nicholas Moreau on building uh, a custom graph connector. And there was also another session where uh, our system integrated partners, specifically Ration and Accenture, gave an overview of what kind of capabilities they offer for mutual customers and uh, how they add value to the graph ecosystem. That's awesome. Uh, okay, well, I'll definitely make sure they're all in the show notes so that people can just click on those and grab them. But, um, you know, for those that are still catching up on Ignite content like I am, you know, if this is of interest, I would highly recommend those. Um, I mean, I've watched you present a bunch of times and you, you're really detailed so that the majority of my audience will want to jump straight there. But, um, you know, James and Monica's one is great from a high level perspective as well, which is great. Cool. Well, look, I, thanks so much for jumping on and sharing this. I'm I'm really excited, um, obviously, from my team's perspective, working with you on getting more and more partners to build these connectors. And um, it's great to see this thing get to GA and be rolling out across all those tenants now. So I'm, I'm really um, I'm proud of you guys for getting that done because this was, I remember two years ago, this was a major, major architectural thing to kind of get locked in. So the team have done a great job of doing that. So congrats. Thanks, thanks a lot, Jeremy. And uh, yep, it, it was a great story brewing with Graph. Uh, adding, improving the overall value of graph and the various experiences that depend on it. Cool. Well, we'll definitely get you back on as this thing evolves over time because there's plenty of stuff going on that's going to make this stuff even bigger and better than what you've already done uh, as a team today. So again, thanks very much for jumping on the show. We'll, We'll speak to you soon. Thanks a lot, Jeremy. See you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at m365devpodcast and check out our show notes at www.m365devpodcast.com. To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. That's all, folks. 